the kingdom of God works in ways that, that our world would not understand or comprehend. So this morning, as we, we look to the person of Jesus, uh, we, we need to know those things for, at the forefront of our message. Uh, as I was preparing for this message this week, um, I don't know how many of you follow uh, me on Facebook or Instagram or anything like that. I try not to post too much, actually. Uh, I don't like people that post every second of every day. I, I just don't have time to do that. <laughs> if that's, uh, if that's your, your gift, if that's your skill, if that's something that you find passion in, like power to you, uh, mine is just not that. But uh, this week I, I encountered an article that was written by a friend of mine uh, named Dave from, from Boston. And uh, he's serving as a pastor, and, and the, the article was entitled uh, The Sufficiency of Scripture and Looking for the, the Speed Limit that the Bible Portrays. And he was talking about the story of, uh, of his, the church that he serves in in Boston. Uh, it's a historic church much like ours. Um, it's been around for hundreds of years, and it had good gospel preaching at the, the foundation of the church, straight away from the teaching and preaching of the Bible, and fell into some liberalism, and then came back uh, to preaching and teaching the gospel, having biblical leadership, biblical church membership, biblical efforts to proclaim the gospel in evangelism and, and through mission. And what he has talked about in, in his writing is that the Bible warns us. It gives us these speed limit signs that tell us, here is what's coming ahead, here is what you need to prepare for here is where you need to trust in God. Uh, Many of our churches and many of us, if we look at business uh, around us in our world, we want to do the thing that gets people into the door, but that's not the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to glorify God. It's to glorify God, to make much of his name, and to proclaim the gospel and goodness of the Lord through all the nations. And we would love to see the gospel expand We'd love to see people turn to trust Jesus and find new life. That is indeed part of the mission, but it's not the whole of the mission. It's not the end game of the end of the mission. The end game is to bring glory to God. And so Dave tells this story, uh, as he he and his wife live in Boston, he tells this story about uh, something that happened in the summer when he encountered uh, a group of his neighbors that were circled around his driveway looking at a postcard. This postcard had come from a church uh, that sent a missions team up into the city of Boston. Uh, the Southerners coming to New England, we all know how we feel about that, right? <laughs> As they come into New England, they come into Boston, uh, they are coming with the perspective of reaching the city for the sake of the gospel. So far, so good, amen? And as they're proclaiming the gospel, as they're working with a church that's in the city of Boston, they are driving around in their white van, and they're handing out these invitations to come to a block party that the church is hosting. Uh, And on the card, it describes the church in three different ways. The first thing that it says is you will hear a message from the Bible that is relevant to your life. Okay, that's good. Amen. Praise the Lord. The second thing that it says is we have fun programs for your kids. Okay, we like kids having fun. Praise the Lord. The third is you will hear music that you would hear on the radio. And this was the area of contention uh, for Dave's neighbors. Dave's neighbors said to him, as they were circling around, talking about these Southerners that came in their van and were looking at these poor New England people who were lost, that didn't know Jesus, that needed to come to church, Dave heard from his neighbors. They said, 
Dave, if we wanted to go to church because of music that sounded like the radio, we would just stay home because we can turn the radio on in our homes and listen to it. And so Dave took the opportunity after gaining a relationship with them, spending time with them, inviting them into his home to have meals with him. After he had shared his faith in Jesus, he had shared the gospel message, he invited them with a question. Well, why should you go to church? And it was amazing to hear some of the answers that came from people who did not profess to know Jesus. They didn't say we should go to church because of things like music or because of fun programs for our kids or because of a cool guy in skinny jeans with a tattoo. They said you should go to church to worship God. And it struck me with an ounce of conviction. And the conviction was this, friends, is that often we go after the things and forget who it is that we're pursuing. We forget sometimes that it is the Lord that we serve. And in a world in which we are trying to tell people that we should run into the next hot thing, the next cool thing to do, the next relevant piece of information, the next five steps to have a happy marriage, the next five steps to have a successful and meaning life, the next thing for us to buy so that we have our satisfaction in our home, what I figured about myself this week was this. It's much easier to pursue self-sufficiency than it is to be dependent upon God. We want to be people who can say, I have made my way. I have figured it out. I have done my piece. But Christianity is not a religion, or it's not a relationship with a father in which we earn our way. Christianity is based solely upon what Jesus has done and accomplished. We stand in the righteousness of God. We stand united in Jesus, not because we have earned our way or because we're doing the next relevant thing. We stand in the righteousness of Jesus because Jesus has paid the price. He has made the way. He has taken what we could not pay. And he has satisfied our debt. And often as people, we tend to go into the forest and focus on the trees. And we see the beauty of the creation around us. And we get so fixated on the one tree that we lose sight of the entire forest. Friends, in Mark chapter 8, this is exactly what Jesus is going to proclaim to the disciples. So please uh, follow along as I read from Mark 8, verses 1 through 21. Reads like this. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over. Seven baskets full. 
and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? As we come into this passage of the Gospel of Mark, we need to see that in the structure of Mark's Gospel, we are actually looking at a parallel section as Jesus goes from the region of Galilee and starts to make his way to Jerusalem. As we, over the next few weeks, look into the Gospel of Mark, we will be tracing Jesus' steps as he goes from Galilee into outside regions back, and then ultimately as he goes forward to the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus will enter Jerusalem as a king on a donkey, and his people will proclaim, Hosanna, Hosanna, God in the highest. And as Jesus makes his way into the city on a donkey, as he makes his way proclaimed as a king, this king would ultimately go to a cross in which he would suffer and die for his people. He would be buried, and then three days later, he would resurrect from the grave to proclaim God's ultimate work in saving his people. But as we look at this section here, how this relates, Mark, through chapter 6 into chapter 8, all the way up to chapter 10, he has these parallel scenes. In fact, we can see it in some sort of structure like this. In Mark 6, verses 31 to 44, Jesus feeds the 5,000. I don't know if, it, as I was reading the passage uh, for this morning, if you had thought, hey, this sounds a little familiar. Anybody say, hey, okay, I think I've, I've read through this. We did. We discussed this as, as, a, as a church in Mark chapter 6. The miracle of Jesus providing for his people through five loaves of bread and two fish to feed a crowd of 5,000. It was his power on display. And here in Mark 8, verses 1 through 10, we see him again feed the multitude and have care for the people. So we will highlight what the differences are uh, between these two people. Uh, then Jesus in Mark 6, verse 45 to 56, he crosses the land. And in Mark 8, 10, we, we heard that he went from one side of the lake into the other region. He crossed on the boat. And then in Mark 7, verses 1 through 23, Jesus has this conflict with the Pharisees. And they, they think that they know the way of the kingdom of God. And again, in Mark 8, verses 11 through 13, Jesus and the Pharisees have a conflict 
And they ask him for a sign. And he tells them, I will not meet your demands. And then there's this conversation in Mark 7, verses 24 through 30, with Jesus and the disciples about the bread. They were trying to figure out how Jesus was able to do this. And again, Jesus in Mark 8, verses 14 through 21, discusses with the disciples bread. And then there's a healing scene in Mark 7, a healing scene in Mark 8, a confession of faith at the end of Mark 7, and a confession of faith here at the end of Mark 8. And what we need to see in this is that Mark is specifically trying to build an argument to reveal to us who Jesus is. So in the first 10 verses, we see Jesus feed the 4,000 people. It's interesting because it says in in verses 1 through 3 that in those days when a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Uh, Jesus' work of of feeding the people is initiated by compassion. Uh, Friends, this morning as we come into worship as the church, as we gather together as the people of God, as we sing songs this morning, as we lift up our prayers... As we hear the word of God preached to us, we need to see that beginning on dependency with God means that we recognize that he cares for us. In our own self-sufficiency, we do not believe that there's anyone who really cares. We struggle with relationships. We struggle with finding genuine community because we believe at the end of the day, in our brokenness, that we will be left alone. This is the fear of many people. It's the fear of of people who are on their deathbeds. Say, I'm alone. This is why I'm suffering. It's the fear of separation and anxiety. It's the fear that cripples us because we know that we are searching for a true sense of community that we really can only begin to get when we know who we are in Christ. In our marriages, we treat our spouses like Jesus, expecting them to fulfill all of our spiritual desires, all of our physical desires, all of our emotional desires, all of our financial desires. But our marriages cannot be oriented in a way in which we have health unless we first recognize that marriage is a triune relationship between husband, wife, and the Lord God Almighty. Marriage is something that God instituted, something that he proclaimed, that he made, and he found it to be good for our benefit and for his glory. But our marriages only become centered truly on health and, and, and on goodness when we recognize that God's in control. It, it's only through God that husbands can sacrifice for their wives. And ladies, you'll say amen to this. It's only through God that ladies can submit to and respect their husbands, right? We have this balance, this this battle that exists within us, and we recognize that God, once we get our relationship with God right first, our dependency is upon him that our relationships will work out. Whether it's our marriage relationship, whether it's parenting. We talked about dependency at the beginning of this, right? Our self-sufficiency. If you have had a child, you will recognize very quickly that your children are not self-sufficient. 
Everybody knows what those sleepless nights are like with your babies. Everybody hears the screams of children. They hear the laughter. They see the joy. They see the hurt. They see the pain. There's literally a point in your life in which you recognize as you're raising children that you are responsible for the well-being of another human. You have to feed this human. You have to clothe this human. You have to comfort this human. They're dependent completely upon you. And as they grow and as we raise them in the Lord, we pray that we can train them in a way that they can become a little bit more independent, but not fully, rebelliously independent. It's the way that many of us treat our work environment. We build ourselves up in such a way in our workplace that we become a key component of what happens. It's our goal to be somebody that's irreplaceable, somebody that is an anchor and a foundation to what we are trying to accomplish in the workplace. It's a good goal, but sometimes we become short-sighted. We think, hmm, if I can do this and if they have to rely on me, then they won't need anyone else. It's fear. The fear of not being recognized. The fear of missing out. We see it even sometimes in our churches. When we come into a place where the church is to be a place in which we grow and we train and we send out people to the glory of God. But all of a sudden, territory is gained and this is my thing. I do this. I serve God this way. I'm in authority because of the things that I do to serve. We don't put God first. Our relationships fall out of place. Jesus' action here in Mark chapter 8 was initiated because of his compassion. In Mark 6, as the disciples had seen the crowd of 5,000 come to this desolate region where they had no food, no provision, Jesus said to them, you're going to feed these people. And the disciples' response was, well, how are we going to do that? There's too many of them. If they come, they will overcome us and they will take us down and we will not be able to meet their need and their desire. They were genuinely concerned because of a practical need. And here in Mark chapter 8, Jesus says that he has compassion on the crowd, that they have been with him for three days. In Mark 6, the crowd came because they saw Jesus as some sort of miracle worker who had power and might. They did not see him as God in the flesh. They did not recognize him for the message that he proclaimed. They recognized him because of the actions that he accomplished. And in Mark 8, we find out in just a short little verse here in verse 2, that they had been with him for three days. And this is likely that Jesus was teaching these people. It's likely now that this crowd who had been following him because of a miracle that he accomplished had seen beyond even the miracle into the person of God, recognizing him and saying, what does it look like for us to follow him now? In this crowd, as they follow Jesus, they they want to hear this message. Jesus teaches them the scripture. He teaches them about God, the kingdom, about what it means to follow 
God with everything that you have. And his comp compassion leads him to saying that they're hungry. They're hungry for the word, but they're also hungry. They're physically hungry. This is why as a church we celebrate those potluck days. Amen? <laughs> we get physically hungry. And in Mark 6, the disciples were concerned because of the practical need. And they saw the, the thing that was in front of the crowd. And in Mark 8, Jesus says, if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way and some of them will co have come from far away. Whereas Jesus in Mark 6 was concerned that they got food, now in Mark 8, he is concerned because of their well-being. In Mark 6, it was almost like this crowd was bothering Jesus. And in Mark 8, the crowd is not bothering Jesus. He has compassion on them. And then the disciples ask a question. In verse 4, the disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And they're like, uh, Jesus, we've done this before. Have you been in the middle of, the, of nowhere and tried to get gas before? doesn't work so well, right? Your gas light's on, you're lost, and you're like, oh boy, how's this going to happen? They're in the wilderness. They're in the middle of nowhere uh, on this lake region, and these people are hungry, and Jesus says, hey, feed them. And the disciples are like, well, how are you going to do this, Jesus? And our minds should be flashing back to Mark chapter 6 where Jesus provided. And in Mark 8, Jesus says to them, in verse 5, how many loaves do you have? We're flashing back to Mark 6. Jesus is going to provide. They, they have seven loaves of bread. And then Jesus in Mark 8, verses 6 and 7, feeds this crowd of 4,000. There's not as much detail as there is in Mark 6 where where in that gospel piece, Jesus distributes the bread. He, he groups the people in 50s. He, he sets them apart. He tells us that there were men, women, children. Uh, there's great detail in here. It just tells us Jesus takes the seven loaves of bread. He gives thanks. He breaks them. And he distributes them. But even in his blessing, he is teaching this crowd. Likely as Jesus has gone from Mark 6 on one side of the Sea of Galilee now to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, he has left a primarily Jewish crowd and gone into a Gentile place where there was a small mix of Gentiles and Jews. And now he is teaching them by saying, when we break our food, we give thanks to God. Because God has provided for us. Hey, we don't just break our, or we don't pray before our meals just because we can pray before our meals. We thank God for his provision. God has provided for us. In verse 8, it tells us that as Jesus provided for these people, that they ate and they were satisfied. And friends, get this. Again, Jesus shows up in a way in which there were leftover pieces to fill seven baskets. And we're not talking about like an offering plate here. We're talking about huge baskets. Jesus fills seven of these baskets to the brim with leftover pieces. 
And then Jesus sent the people on their way. And he got in the boat. And he went again across to the region of Dalmanutha. And then Jesus encounters the Pharisees. The Pharisees came and they began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he got in the boat and he got away from them. But in this short interaction with the Pharisees, we see a group of people who have known the ways of the Lord. They are Jewish people that are set apart in the, the leadership structure of Judaism. They're known as Pharisees. They're observers of the law. They are holy men. They are known for their, their religious vigor and spirit. And they say to Jesus, Hey, Jesus, will you give us a sign? And what they're saying to Jesus here should remind us of what the Old Testament teaches us. In the Old Testament, when somebody was proclaiming to be a prophet, the people of God knew that this person was legitimate by a sign from the Lord. And so what the Pharisees are saying to Jesus here is, hey, Jesus, prove yourself. Show us that you're the real deal. Show us that you are, in fact, who you say you are. And all of us in our hearts right now should be a little annoyed. Because as we look and we think through the Gospel of Mark, how many times does it take before these people see Jesus to be Jesus? Friends, we're not talking about people who don't know God. We're talking about people who proclaim to know God. And they don't trust that Jesus is Jesus. And as New Englanders, it, it reigns true in our hearts because we're skeptical people. I am much quicker to uh, be a skeptic than I am to be trustworthy. Are you not like that too? You see something and you say, eh, I don't know if that's the real deal. We want the sign. We want to see. We want to be able to say, hey, this works out. Friends, I, want to, I just want to ask you something. If God showed up, and did the sign right in front of you, would you believe him? Search your heart right now. Would you believe him? And sometimes we're looking for the big and miraculous, and we, we don't even recognize the small sign of what God does right in front of us. We're looking for God's voice to open up from the heavens, the clouds to spread, and for him to say, hey, believer, do this but we won't pick up our Bibles. We're looking for God to work in the individual in a way that no scientist, no doctor, no person can explain. We're proclaiming them to have faith. But leading up to this problem, we ourselves were not walking in faith. We're walking in hard hearts, saying, I think this about God, but I don't know if I actually believe it. We're riding from emotional high to emotional high, trying to find something that makes us feel good, when it's in fact that our dependency on God actually works best when we're not feeling good. 
Nobody wants trials. Nobody wants tribulations. Nobody wants to go through the hard thing. But friend, let me tell you this, that Jesus will show up in the hard thing. On January 31st in 1892, Charles Spurgeon passed away. Spurgeon served the Lord as a pastor for 42 years, and he exemplified dependency upon God. This guy battled depression. He battled sicknesses and illnesses in which he had to leave his hometown of London and travel to the south shore of France every few months to become better in his health. He faced attack upon attack for his character. He enjoyed himself a cigar, and that was looked down upon by the moral elite within England. People flooded into his doors to tell him, you have an amazing gift, you're an incredible preacher. And his message continued to ring and, and be the same. It's not me, it's Jesus. He trusted Jesus through and through. His last sermon that he ever preached, he made a plea that people would run to Jesus, that they would embrace Jesus. A man who had 40 years to look back and see the wonder and power of God, who had battled depression, lost his wife, had faced trial after trial, and his plea remained the same, run to the Lord. The Pharisees say, Jesus, we want you to be legit. We want you to show us that you are who you say you are and listen to what Jesus says. First, he sighs deeply. He says, why does this generation seek a sign? Jesus knows something about these people and their character and in their hearts that they don't even recognize. Think back into the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees accused Jesus of practicing black magic. They call him Belezebul, which means Lord of the Flies. They call him the Son of Satan. And Jesus here responds with their request for a sign again, and he says, you wouldn't trust it. You wouldn't believe it if it was in front of you. But Jesus' rejection is based on their unbelief. We should think of Moses and the faithless people of Israel as they walked through the wilderness as God for 40 years, right? We were talking about slow growth at the beginning of this, our dependency on God, that God sets up spiritual speed limit signs to say, hey, here's where we're going. Friends, the growth of our church might look like the wilderness in 40 years. That might be the truth. And in the wilderness, Moses battled people who were saying, we're not doing the right thing, we're not being relevant, we're not being cool, we want to go back to Egypt because at least they fed us good food, we're sick of this manna that God's brought to us, we want steak. And Moses' response was, trust the Lord. You don't need the next shiny thing. You don't need the next 
item that's going to make you feel like you have all that you need. What you need is Jesus, friends. Jesus was full of indignation and grief for these people. He rejected them because of their unbelief, and he was upset by their unbelief, but his attitude and his feelings led him to grieving for these people. Friends, the church ought to be a place in which we grieve for the lost. They don't know the Lord. We should grieve that they don't know the Lord. We're not to rise up like the Pharisees and stick our noses down at people and say, You fool. We're to grieve. Look at all these things that I have right, the Pharisees said. The Pharisees were in the forest. They were looking at the same tree. They knew its roots. They knew its bark. They knew the type of wood that it was, the type of leaves that it would bear. Maybe if it had fruit. But you know what they didn't know? They didn't know the forest. They lost sight of the forest. Give us a sign, Jesus. And Jesus, in his grief, goes to the other side and he says, I'm not going to do that. He's not playing, friends. And as he gets into the boat, verse 14 brings us back onto the scene of the disciples. And it tells us that they had forgotten the bread. Like, oh, Lord. Right? You got seven baskets of bread and you forgot it. And they only had one loaf with them. And they're upset, they're, they're angry. And Jesus takes this moment as they're angry and upset over their own foolishness. Jesus takes this moment and he tries to teach them something. Jesus isn't concerned about the bread. He says this, he says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So Jesus takes this play on bread and he says, hey, friends, As we're talking about bread, let me remind you of what the Pharisees have just said. Let me remind you of what Herod's desire was to rule and reign and to be his own king in his life. Let me tell you what the Pharisees are struggling through, that they want all these things. They want to be self-sufficient. They want to be powerful. They want to have the right over their own life. And Jesus says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Herod. Leaven was a, like a spice that they used in bread that would help it rise. And unleavened bread was meant to represent purified bread. And what happens is if you just add just a small amount of leaven to a loaf of bread, the whole thing explodes. There's not like a safe amount of leaven that you can put into bread that will stop it from doing what leaven does. So Jesus isn't saying here, hey, allow this much leaven into your life or this much into your life. He's saying, beware of it. Watch out. And friends, he's not talking about the spice. What he's talking about is the idolatry of thinking that we are self-sufficient. He's saying, remember that you are dependent upon God. 
And here's how the disciples respond. They respond in verse 16. They discuss with the, one another that they had lost the bread. Jesus takes this moment to teach them, hey friends, here's your big life lesson. I'm going to tell you about how to follow Jesus, the cost of all this. And they're like, Jesus, can you see all of this bread? Like, where did it go? And then they start fighting and arguing with one another. Mark and, and John are looking at each other saying, you fool, you left it. No, you left it. And Jesus has had enough. If we didn't see it with the Pharisees when he was fed up with them, he gets fed up with the disciples. Aware of this, he looks at them and he's like, what? Why are you asking about the bread? Do you not yet see? Do you not yet perceive and understand? I've given you front access of this show, this newsreel, this picture of God's kingdom. You have everything you need right in front of you, and you're concerned about the bread. And then he goes as far to say, you you don't perceive, you don't understand. Are your hearts hard? It's really easy for us to look at the Pharisees and say they're hard-hearted fools. But friend, we are capable of becoming hard-hearted fools ourselves. Because we're looking for the bread when Jesus is right in front of us. We have the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We're looking for the sign when we have the word. We're looking for the emotional high. When God is calling us to faithfulness and consistency, independency. God is not telling you to pick up your britches and figure it out. He's not proclaiming the American dream. What he's proclaiming is, lean on me, trust me, follow me, watch me. Lately I've been reading this book, it's called The Imperfect Disciple. And this has just been an earth-shattering truth. We follow Jesus better and we grow more in the Lord, not when we're trying to do everything, but when we're trusting that God will do everything. You guys know my theological bent. You know that I exalt the sovereignty of God, but the sovereignty of God is becoming more and more real. Because at the end of the day, praise God that it's not left to you or me to rule and reign over the universe to put all of the pieces in the right position. Praise God that he does it. Praise God that even in our rebellion, even in those moments where we try to do it on our own, God's looking at us and saying, that's my son, that's my daughter, I've got them. We rest in the hands of the creator, friends. What an incredible truth. Jesus rebukes them in verse 17. Aware of this, he says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand or are your hearts hardened? Verse 18, having eyes do you not see? You're blind. Having ears do you not hear? You're deaf. Do you not remember? A chapter and a half ago in Mark 6, Jesus says, When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? The disciples say 12. And he says, okay, 
And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they say, seven. And Jesus responds with this. Do you not yet understand? Friend, this morning, if you have come to church, if you've been like me, maybe over the past few weeks, in the past few months, you have tried to do all of this in your own power. You've tried to walk with Jesus, and you've tried to say, hey, I've got this. I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to do more. I'm going to do better. Will you hear this this morning? Rest in the Lord. If you are busy and life is chaotic right now, will you, will you hear this? Stop. Stop. And rest in Jesus. Friends, Let's think about this for a moment. If you've come to a place in your life where you have become a Christian, you've responded to the gospel and God has been working in you, will you think for a moment of that first day, that first Sunday that you came into church as a new believer? Or that moment that you got it? Maybe you walked in church for most of your life and you heard these messages and you didn't understand, but then one day you really got it. Remember that passion. Remember that zeal. Remember the energy. Remember the overwhelming sense of joy. Now look to who it comes from. Not from you, not from me. It comes from God himself. Rest in Jesus, friend. As you look at the circumstances of your life, maybe you feel like you've gotten a hard break. Man, life has been hard. The past month has been hard. Friend, the sky is not falling this morning. Your feet touch the ground. You're here at church this morning. The universe is still spinning, and it's because God has got everything in his control. Friend, maybe you've been thinking like, oh, man, we need to do this, or maybe I need to do this. You stop and pursue God in these areas. Read your Bible. If you are like, God, I don't hear your voice, I don't know what's going on right now, will you open up what he has spoken Friend, will you look into the word and see that this is all sufficient? And when I say all sufficient, it leads you to salvation, it sustains you in salvation, and it's going to bring you to glory. Will you trust what the Bible says today? If you don't know where to start, will you talk with me? I'd be happy to share with you where to start reading in the Bible. Man, maybe you're feeling like I'm not disciplined in this and I need help. Listen, I I promise you, if you read the word, God will speak. Sometimes it's in booming voices and other times it's in the still, small silence. But I promise you this, that God will speak through his word. Friend, will you not forsake the gathering together of the saints 
Church attendance isn't about a golden star. We're proclaiming the gospel to one another by being here. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. We all need Jesus. Make a great song. But friend, we're here together to point one another to the Lord. We're not here to show up and be like, hey, check it out. My life's perfect. This week's been good. Friend, we're here. This is why we're, we're emphasizing and pushing discipleship groups right now. We want you to not just gain community and a common sense of coming together on Sunday morning. We want you to take that community to the next level. Would you open your heart, confess your sin? Would you say, hey, I'm not, I'm not perfect. I've got brokenness. I'm working through this. Would you open your life not just to the people you're close to, but to the people of the church? Because I promise you this, that the gospel will show up. Because you'll hear from the older saint that the gospel is still true in their life. You'll hear from the younger saint that the gospel is fresh. You'll hear from the older married couple that they're still working at it. You'll hear from the young married couple that they love working at it. But God has a message for you from his word it's with his people it's for his kingdom and it's for his glory we're not self-sufficient people we need to be dependent upon the Lord so this morning as we come to the Lord's Supper as we get to reflect Emily and James are going to lead us in a song as we think about what God has just done through Jesus Maybe you're, you're here this morning and you need to confess for a moment. Confess that you've been trying to work out your own self-sufficiency. Friend, will you run to the Lord this morning? Hey, I'm running with you. I've battled the self-sufficiency battle recently. But I need God. So run with me. Hey, if you're battling this morning of finding your sufficiency in what God has spoken, will you run to the Bible today? Will you read Mark 8 and let it soak into your heart? Read it again and again and again and again and again and again and then again and again. Let it soak. Will you pray? If you don't know what to pray, open up to a psalm. Pray a psalm. Pray Psalm 95 like we did this morning. Sing a song that we sang this morning. Remember the Lord's Supper this morning. Jesus has bled and died so that we might live. And because he lives, we can face tomorrow, friends. Join me as we pray and as I invite the little men to help me with the Lord's Supper. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you rule and reign in our lives, that you are in control. God, I pray that our dependency on you would grow. And as we encounter Jesus and as we look at what it means to follow you and the way of your kingdom over the next few months, God, may your words speak to us in such a way that we would cherish it, that we would run and say we need you. And Lord, this morning as we take the Lord's Supper, may we reflect again on the message of the gospel and how it pertains to us individually and how it pertains to us as the church. May you be glorified.
In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, as we take the Lord's Supper this morning,